0: Hey guys, welcome to the Great Awakening Podcast. Uh, the episode will start in a moment, but just wanted to give you a heads up that the audio is pretty bad. I uh, This was my first interview and I did not have some of the settings dialed in correctly. So um, the content is great. Um, uh, it's a conversation with Neil Shinvi and I think uh, it's well worth your time, but um, just I know the, the, the audio is bad, so I'm going to get that fixed as I've got some other interviews coming up. Um, but, Yeah, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Hi there and welcome to the Great Awakening podcast where we deconstruct wokeness one concept at a time. Uh, We're trying something new today. This is uh, our first ever uh, interview format. And so uh, as we're talking about wokeness and how it intersects with the church and what the what we as Christians should think about it. This, uh, I could think of no one better to talk to than my friend, Neil Shinvi, uh, who has just been doing phenomenal work, um, exposing this stuff for many years and, and explaining it to a Christian audience. So Neil, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Josh. All right. So let's, uh, our, you know, our audience is kind of been following this stuff we've explained what critical theory is how it um we've gone through the four tenets of critical theory that you talked about in some of your talks so um i want to this conversation to just be really focused on um whether or not this is a problem in the church, like that's one of the common objections that that I hear when I we start talking about this, is that, well, okay, I, I see your point, but this isn't a problem in the church. This is this is just a distraction. Like, let's just focus on, you know, the gospel or solving you know problems of injustice and not worry about this. Like, this isn't really a threat. Well, how would you respond to that?
1: Yeah, I'd say that for years now, we've been seeing the, that these ideas are not just confined to the culture, but are, are making their way into the evangelical church, not just the church at large, like the liberal main, mainline denominations, but the evangelical church. And I think it began around the time the Great Awakening began in our culture in you know, 2014, early 20, 2010s, and took off with Black Lives Matter. You could see it actually in evangelical response to the Black Lives Matter movement slash organization, there's a lot of conflict there. And it was because uh, there was a conflict over whether these ideas were valid. And as you saw people embracing the organization, even, you saw that there was a, that fault line uh, showing up in how we thought about things like uh, systemic racism, intersectionality, uh, white privilege, and that you'd, you'd see those rumblings in, say, 2014, 2015. And with Donald Trump's election, it got worse. And today, uh, you know, when I used to talk about how evangelicals are embracing the, these ideas, I used to ha- go to social media and find tweets. And But now I'm, you know, I could give you whole conferences. I could give you books that explicitly endorse these ideas that cite people like Robin DiAngelo and Abraham X. Kendi. So, um, so I think it's undeniable; these ideas are influencing the church, not just at the grassroots level, but even leaders are endorsing these ideas today.
0: Okay, and so as as we're seeing these ideas show up, um, you know, some people, I, and it, I, we've been in this conversation long enough to where we, I think, we saw initially people were saying, "What are you talking about? No one's promoting critical race theory. This is you're nuts." And we've gone you know, full spectrum to like, well, of course we're teaching critical race theory. It's just a legal, it's just a, you know, a legal right. theory and there's it's useful analytical tools to understand our society. But you, you talk a lot about how, you know, we can't just eat the meat and spit out the bones if the, if the meat is, is poisoned. So why, why, why can't we do that? what, what, it, why, what poisons the meat of critical theory?
1: First of all, um, I'd say the ideas themselves, you talked about the core ideas, the social binary, oppression through ideology or ideas, hegemonic power, talked about lived experience and how those ideas, those ideas themselves are incompatible with Christianity for many reasons. You've talked about that. I've talked about that at length. And people will say these phrases like, let's eat the meat and spit up the bones. And I say, look, that language itself is wrong. And the analogy I always use, which is very helpful, is to queer theory. Because queer theory and critical race theory really are, are cousins. They both are, are critical theories, ideas, and ideology applied to race versus gender identity. And you would never tell an evangelical to eat the meat and spit out the bones of queer theory. Why? Why is that? It's because. The essence of queer theory is founded on an unbiblical assumption that gender is purely a social construct. That is the as the core fundamental idea on which all of queer theory is based now is it true that queer theorists say nothing but lies all the time well no there are some queer theorists who will occasionally say things that are true even insightful but we'd never use that analogy because we recognize that there's something fundamentally wrong with their entire outlook their entire framework well the same so i would just question that whether that language is helpful we, we i always hear well you can you can find truth in every discipline okay but you don't use that analogy for literally every discipline every ideology or some things that are so poisonous you just say no full stop we can't reject this even if we think they occasionally get things right that's just number one the analogy question the analogy whether it's appropriate number two I think people see superficial agreement uh and they'll say they say what's well, that's enough you can, they agree that say racism is bad and I I want to say well look you have to look deeper than that uh, for example um I can appreciate lots of uh, what a Mormon author might say about parenting. I could read a Mormon book on leadership and say, "Hey, this is a good book. Actually, they have a lot of good insights about leadership." Does not remotely mean that Mormonism and Christianity are compatible religiously, right? I, I might actually think that some Marxist economist says something, you know, interesting about tariffs. <laughs> sure, does not mean that Marxism is a good way to run our economy, right? So, well, you have to look but beneath that superficial agreement to look at the fundamental disagreement. So what what, what are they? Um, what I would say is the most obvious example is that critical race theory from its earliest uh, formulation believes that racism, sexism, and heterosexism are all interlocking systems of oppression. That's not a modern ideology that's been introduced later, interjected later into critical race discourse. No, if you go back to 1993, Words That Wound, co-authored by Crenshaw, Delgado, and the, the founders of the movement, um, they themselves were saying, no, we have to work to dismantle all hierarchies uh, because, because all of these oppressions are systemic. And there must, be, there must be, quote, fundamental social transformation. That's, again, the origins of the discipline, the, the authors of the discipline themselves. So the point is there, that's just one example of how their whole conception of things like justice morality, oppression, ethics, law, is is not compatible with the way Christians ought to view those things. We, we shouldn't view—they they view law as purely uh, an imposition of the ruling class. It's a way for the ruling class to justify their power. That's what they think law is. And we would say uh, um, Tommy Curry, who's a critical race theorist at Temple, says that critical race theorists generally reject the idea that law is grounded in divine law. He he says that in one of his papers, as as he thinks personally, but critical race theorists think. And Christians can't believe that law is merely a human invention. It It can't merely be that. There are unjust laws and there are just laws, and just laws reflect God's divine moral law. That was Thomas Aquinas's view, that was Martin Luther King Jr.'s view, and that's rejected by critical race theory. So again, you can go on and on and find that their core ideas, the the foundations of their discipline, are not compatible with Christianity. And that's just critical race theory narrowly, much less this broader enterprise of critical theory, which extends to things like queer theory, intersectional feminism, and so mm-hmm. forth.
0: And you, you, so you would say that you can't just take out, like, well, I like some of the insights from intersectionality that you know we or or lived experience that it's important to listen because it's mm-hmm. it's inextricably linked to all of these other you know foundational ideas
1: what well, I'd say if you say well i just want to take the idea that we should listen i'm like where did since when did critical race theory invent the idea we should listen it's it's not critical race theory at all when you begin to talk about what critical race theory actually is it's based on what they they, they list that you can look at Crenshaw or Delgado or Gladson Billings uh, and Gladson Billings or all Yasso, all these theorists, they will specify, they will spell out the defining elements, the core tenets of critical race theory. They don't say things like you should listen. (laughs) That's, that's, that's not from critical race theory. That's just uh, call it general revelation. Call it what the Bible says in Proverbs 18, 17. uh, But, people will act as if they get that, that stunning insight from listening to Derek Bell. That's not true. So what I would say is that, uh, and the other thing I should emphasize too, is that when you say eat the meat and spit out the bones, you're assuming a level of familiarity and expertise when dealing with these writings that the average Christian just does not have. And it's like saying the analogy I use is imagine you have a handful of uh, poison pills And in those a thousand poison pills, you have three Skittles and you tell a five year old, there's some candy in there. Go for (laughs) it. Right. Pick out, eat the, eat the candy and spit out the poison. You're, you're presuming a lot about their discernment and the average Christian who has no idea on both sides. Frankly, I think we see on conservatives and, and progressives don't, haven't really ever read these texts to, to say to them, oh, go ahead. It's, it's fine. There's some good stuff in there. That's unwise at the very least let alone the fact that in its core assumptions, it's wrong. Yeah. So we should never assume that Christians have the discernment to approach these ideas and pick out the good parts, because frankly, they we don't. Most of us yeah.
0: don't. And one thing I, I've talked about is how a lot of the the pastors that are introducing some of these ideas, um, you know, I think Matt Chandler has talked about white privilege and how he's found that to be a helpful concept, and i i firmly believe that matt chandler i'm sure he has very solid biblical guardrails to keep him from going off into queer theory land you know i just don't i'm sure that those, those are in place um, but when he introduces this idea to his congregation who is not as mature and may not have those guardrails in place that to be logically consistent within this paradigm of seeing the world you have to start then questioning your straight privilege. Like, and I, should I listen to the lived experience of LGBT community and, and start, you know, interacting with, you know, queer authors and queer interpretations of scripture. It, it's this logical progression that by introducing these ideas that, that seem reasonable on the surface, it, it kind of, you know, send you down that that path.
1: Right. You know, it's funny because I years ago, I used to use the term white privilege, but I would define it very carefully to make it empirical. I would just say, look, there are studies that show that whites have advantages over blacks, you know, unearned advantages in certain situations. I defined it that way, but I stopped using the term. Why? Because I was not defining it the way that Peggy McIntosh did in the paper when she defined it. I realized, look, even though I'm saying, well, I'm putting up these guardrails and saying, no, here's how I define it, and that is a reasonable, empirically grounded concept in a narrow sense, but that was not reflective of the actual way the term was being used at all. And Macintosh has a paper about things like heteronormative privilege and straight privilege, and 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 so the so the point is, a lot of pastors I think are just throwing around this jargon because it sounds hip, and they. May not even mean what Peggy McIntosh means by what privilege, but that's all the more reason to not use that term. If you're gonna, you can't co-opt a term that you don't even really understand, and then get shocked when your congregation is buying into all these really poisonous ideas. In the same way, I say I don't use the term social justice. Is that because I don't believe we should apply biblical justice? Principles aside, no, no, I believe that, but it's not what social justice often means in today's context. I don't use the term. I could say uh, I am, I am queer affirming. Why is that? Well, I affirm that you know queer identities are sinful. See, I affirm that, so I'm queer affirming. Well, that's confusing. No one uses the term that way. So, in the same way, I'd urge pastors not to throw around this jargon that is going to, con- at the very best, going to confuse people, and at worst, mislead them about what you actually believe. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I was talking with um Joe Rigney at uh T4G this past week and um he was he even suggested that you know maybe churches need to stop teaching against the sin of racism mm-hmm. because it's become this mm-hmm. this bucket that the world is filling with all these ideas. It's just like a, we're teaching against this um this concept that's not you know specific enough to, um, and he said, you know, we should maybe think about just talking about ethnic partiality and ethnic partiality. hatred. And you know, Shylin's book, um, you know, very deliberately does not use the term racism right. because it has become this this kind of catch-all that the world is then filling with all these various ideas that are just not biblical. And so, when we're teaching against things in general, specific ways. People are bringing like all these ideas that they're getting from culture. And it's just it's not helpful. We have to be defining these terms.
1: At the very least, you can when you preach against racism, you should say I'm defining it as racial partiality. Now, in that case, oftentimes I find the dictionary is helpful because dictionaries reflect usage. So when the dictionary says racism is racial partiality, well, they haven't yet they haven't yet. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yes. <laughs> change their definition to include all this crazy other stuff. A good example would be white supremacy. The term that we associate in the dictionary defines as belief that whites are superior to blacks, right? And ought to run society. And that's, a, that's obviously wrong. It's a sin. But today, that's been, and you can find it in the literature, it's been redefined to include all kinds of things that are like the idea that. Uh, you know, the hard work is the key to success. That's white supremacy. Individualism, uh, objective, rational, linear thinking. Believe it or not, this is, that was listed by the Smithsonian as elements and assumptions of whiteness yeah. and white culture. And you're like, that's that's not white supremacy. So, again, at the very least, you need to define your terms. And even I would say explicitly say, I do not mean this stuff when, you know, I'm defining it this way that excludes other definitions you'll hear like these. So people are very clear. You're being clear here. And I I worry, honestly, that some pastors, I don't know, but I feel like it's easier to be squishy to use, to throw around these terms in a vague way, because then you get everyone, everyone's happy, but no, no one's really sure what you mean, because conservatives hear that term one way and progressives hear it a different way. But you can kind of remain in this safe middle ground. And they look Be be clear, be honest, what you believe and what the Bible teaches. And if people get offended by that, well, look, that's not your fault. That's that they're they're rejecting what God has said about this. Yeah, I've noticed
0: that from it seems like you'll get these these general squishy statements from the large platform. And then when there's questions from conservatives, like, wait a minute. You know, they'll retreat to like the, the tiny platform. You're like, Oh, no, no, I didn't mean that. And it's like, but everybody yeah. you just <laughs> said that to right. is going to interpret it that way. Um, can you walk us through the effects this is having in congregations? Like how do I I firmly believe this is fueling a lot of what we're seeing in the deconstruction movement. Can you, can you walk us yeah. through how this, these ideas erode someone's faith? So let's I think a lot of
1: this, got injected into the evangelical conversation regarding race, right? So they sort of began adopting these terms, these ideas, and applying it to race when it seemed, at least overtly, ostensibly, like it was most compatible with Christian theology. Now, I think that was wrong, but it still at least seems plausible to say, well, you know, racism definitely exists. It's been around. It's part of our country's history. It was written into our laws for a very long time. So it kind of makes sense to think about how there can be these lasting effects uh, stereotypes, uh, norms that are uh, mirror are uh, the historical reality of racism in this country. That seems plausible, and, but then from that starting point, once you absorb these ideas, it will take you far, uh, much farther than just applying them to race. In fact, again, that one of the core tenets of critical race theory from its inception was you can't merely deconstruct racism alone. You must also examine sexism. Heterosexism and now things like ableism, cisgenderism, etc. So, what will often happen is people will begin by adopting the definition of oppression. This redefinition that oppression occurs when uh, the ruling class imposes their ideas on culture, and we all take it for granted as normal, natural, objective. That's called hegemonic power. And the point is, they take that and they say, okay, that's how whiteness becomes this really bad thing. Whiteness is this value system that has been imposed on us by whites, whites throughout history. We we normalize white culture, white values, etc. So and then they but then they go from that definition of oppression, and that's oppression. So the fact that whites have imposed white values on culture supposedly is a sign that that's why people of color are oppressed. But then what do you instantly have to do if if that's oppression? Oppression is when the ruling class, whether it's whites or men or heterosexuals or the rich, that's when they impose their values on culture. That's oppression. Well, then what else is oppression? Well, the patriarchy—not defined as actual discrimination against women, but I guess these ideas, like men should be elders and women should not be elders, that's oppression. <laughs> it's, 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 by that, you've defined oppression that yeah. way. And then heterosexism—that that straight. the straight establishment has said that uh, homosexuality is a perversion and is is not God ordained. Well, that's oppression. The idea that the gender binary is God's design for humanity—that's oppression. So it, that definition of depression oppression will, ble- will will logically necessarily bleed into all these other areas it was intended to <laughs> it was never intended to be of confined to just race so immediately you'll see that's why we can see people major evangelical figures and you know christina cleveland michelle higgins um dante stewart recently uh starting with uh, a focus on racial racism right but then you'd see their theology begin to slip on things like gender identity uh sexuality etc and, and, and that, to the point where christina cleveland we can talk about her later but she's now renounced christianity and worships the divine black feminine and she was giving plenary talks at crew and intervarsity conferences and had a christianity today column like seven years ago no. so uh, that's one that's one area another area would be uh biblical interpretation So. Again, the idea is that the ruling class, whether it's whites, men, heterosexuals, they've imposed their ideas on culture uh, and that we take that for granted as natural and normal and, and objective. Well, that's the assumption. And so then because of that, we should we should be suspicious of whatever narrative the white straight european men are telling well what does that do to say your belief that the doctrines of the of of the reformation the five solas or the westminster confession of faith which was written entirely by straight european males right old white dead men how do you then not begin to be suspicious of european theology the reformation which came out of europe uh, and I, you know it's funny i met chandler years ago wondering one of his talks i think it was mlk 50 he sort of he was like, well, the Reformation actually was due to a, 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 a an African deacon named Deacon Michael, and he he was the one. Now, what, why was he doing that? It's actually not true. If you look at the dates, it's not <laughs> when it started. But why was he even trying to tie the Reformation to African history? And I have to believe it's because we have this inherent knee-jerk suspicion. If something came from white, straight men, it must be wrong. Well, that's a really bad hermeneutic. We, we shouldn't be suspicious of anyone because just because their race or gender or sexuality or or sexuality is different because it's it's a behavior but we certainly shouldn't just say oh if white men believed it it must be it's it's i'm skeptical of it and if you do that and you begin to say we have to platform non western uh theology of people of color for example wait why are you doing that i don't mind you know letting other groups talk about scripture and saying what the bible teaches that, that's great i want to bring different voices but at the end of the day scripture is what determines what's true not who interprets scripture right so that's again you'll what you're seeing is you're seeing people rejecting the the theology of white straight men just because they're white straight men not they're asking well what does the bible right. teach um and then finally you know at the base level christianity itself is a hegemonic narrative. Christianity is a story, a narrative about how God has all the power and he has a right to all that power. He is good. What he says is true and good, and he has all of his values are imposed on us. Well, that makes God, from the perspective of a critical theorist, the ultimate oppressor. And again, you're seeing people deconstruct Christianity because they see it as oppressive, they see it as this one singular narrative. And that they're taught to have be suspicious of that, and to question the people that are imposing their narrative on culture. So, in all these ways, and we're seeing that you said in the deconstruction movement, people eventually, sometimes even abandoning, certainly abandoning conservative theological beliefs, but sometimes even abandoning Christianity because they're seeing it all through the lens of power.
0: Yeah, and I think you're also seeing there's a suspicion um, not just of theology that's coming from you know, white European sources, you know, traditional um, understanding of, of scripture. There's a suspicion if brothers and sisters um, that are minorities sound too much like, you know, so like someone like vodi Bauckham or our friend Samuel Say is completely dismissed because, oh, well, you're just, you're white adjacent. You're just, you know, sharing the same you know, same ideas, and so there's this
1: right, and that's I mean, that's part of the theory. The theory is that they have a false consciousness, right? They or they don't, they haven't achieved what's called a critical consciousness. They 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 are still just parroting parroting the ideas that were fed to them by straight white males. And there's a whole that goes back to Gramsci again, and even to Marx, really. Um, so yeah, there's there's a it basically cuts off any ability for you to critique the, these ideas objectively. If you're a white male and you say, well, this, this theology is wrong. They say, yeah, you'd say that you're trying to justify your white male privilege. But if a woman says that or, or a black man says that, what's well, because you have imbibed this, uh, the ideology has been fed to you by white. Yeah. Men, there's no way to critique it. Um, you have to just basically just either knuckle under and go along with what they're saying or or be dismissed as a bigot.
0: OK, so what are some warning signs we can look for? Um, you know, if, if there's another police shooting and the pastor leaves the, the church, you know, in prayer the following Sunday, is that the time to pick up the pitchforks and the, the torches and run them out of town? Or you know, how do we how do we recognize this when it starts to enter our church?
1: Right, I always caution people, you know, don't jump to conclusions. Right, uh, we're urged to maintain the bond of peace in the church and to strive for unity, and it does not mean you never, you know, leave your church. You never confront error. It just means that with our posture should be one where we seek unity. We don't assume the worst. Uh, you go back and read the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Catechism, where it talks about the ninth commandment, including things like not, you know, unwillingness to believe a false report, bad report assuming the best of people. Um, So yeah, don't, don't, if you hear the words, the word justice or oppression, you know, in a sermon, don't immediately assume that, oh my gosh, my church is going woke. That's, that's ridiculous. In the same way, I even say, when you hear these buzzwords like intersectionality or white privilege, I would be nervous. I would be, but don't, assume the worst again, maybe they're just repeating stuff they heard on NPR and you should pull them aside and say, Hey, what do you mean by that? Do you realize where those ideas come from? What they assume. So I would just, again, ask questions of your elders, ask questions of your pastor. What did you mean by that? Are you at all concerned by uh, this movement? Um, But I think the the number one, uh, the number one sign that your church is uh, beginning to drift. Well, there are several signs, but one big one is asymmetry are are they applying God's moral law to all people equally? are they looking for are they looking at try to th- try, trying to look at things objectively or are they exalting one particular uh, identity groups as the sort of infallible guide to this area? So you know when if you say well we, we rather than saying we're, we're all sitting under God's commands, we're all sitting under God's word uh, do we say no no, no, no. Uh, one group gets to set the agenda, gets to determine everything, and the rest of us have to just shut up and listen. That's not how God wants us to function in the church. Uh, And that all has to do, again, with the idea of the social binary. Some people are on top, some people are on bottom. The people on the bottom of the social binary, the oppressed groups, they have uh, uh, achieved a critical consciousness, and they can see what the rest of us are blind to. This is sometimes called standpoint epistemology, that people that are oppressed have they can better read the world in the words of Paulo Freire, the critical pedagogy. So the, the point is, when you see that double standard, when you see this asymmetry between group one group and another group, you should start questioning, where are you getting this? Because, again, the Bible does hold us all accountable to the same moral law and apply it equally equal its measures. Things like that are all throughout the Bible, no partiality. Um, that's a that's a big thing. Um Another thing is that this is an interesting one and one that I'll touch on a lot, the absence of genuine dialogue. You know, when there are disputed matters in the church, even about how you think about big issues, we'd expect to see um, dialogue, people arguing from scripture why their, their beliefs are correct, right? You'd expect that. But what I tend to see when people adopt this, uh, these ideas from critical theory, every, the dialogue disappears it becomes, well, we all have to just defer to this certain narrative because that's the right narrative. And if we platform people who disagree with it, we're actually helping oppression. We're, we're, we're furthering injustice by even allowing people to speak. Why? Because those ideas are what are oppressive. So you, the last thing you want to do is let people express oppressive ideas. And so you get a very one-sided, like top-down uh, narrative that, that you can't you are no longer allowed to question that's a very that's a, that's a warning sign anytime yeah. the church does that um and again we're not talking about areas where the bible is like well it's clear the bible says that these are our doctrinal boundaries this is our confessional statement you know that's why we have a church we're talking about areas where there should be room for disagreement within the church when that disappears that's a that's a problem yeah. and then this the third sign is when the gospel is displaced by social concerns um the s- sermons exegetical sermons should be about the text and what the Bible says, what God says about an issue. And I'm a big fan of expositional preaching and hearing what the text says. And the main <laughs> point of the sermon is the main point of the text. Um, but if you get sermons that end up taking the text and then going off and talking about some social issue, that's not in the text. That's a big problem. Of course we, we should apply the text to our, to our situation eventually, but it has to start with what the text says. And in the, the principal matter of the Bible is the gospel. It's the salvation of a man, the salvation of man from sin. It's the glory of God in Christ. And so if that's not the primary thing you're hearing in your church, you're instead of hearing almost entirely about social issues, that's a problem. And by the way, that applies equally to conservative churches where you start hearing a lot more about things like freedom and politics and liberty and rights, all that stuff. Then you hear about the gospel. That, That can happen both sides. But But when you hear more about, say, a social injustice, than you do about things like the divinity of Jesus or salvation or justification or sanctification, again, that's why do we know something's gone wrong? Well, because the Bible itself speaks primarily about uh, our need for salvation and the blessings of salvation and who God is and who we are. Uh, And that ought to be reflected in the church's life. Um, That's another sign. And hopefully... Most evangelical churches are still recognizing that that the church's primary mission, primary mission is the preaching of the word and administration of the gospel um, and not uh, the secondary how we apply that to living as citizens in democracy. That's that's an implication of the gospel Mm -hmm. that we should live righteously, but it's not what the church's main mission is. Yes.
0: Um, So let's say that we're someone's listening. They are. They see one or more of those warning signs that you're talking about. How do we, how do we approach those conversations, um, within our church and maybe, um, you know, as a se- secondary thing it, within, you know, online in some of our interactions? You're, fa- you're famous. Like, I think the word I've heard to describe you most often is ironic. Uh, and you, you do, you, you demonstrate this well, how to have, you know, a, uh, dispassionate, um, persuasive conversation without letting emotion drive it. So how, how do you approach these conversations? What can someone who's in a church, they're scared that they're going to have to change churches or that it's going to be this big confrontation. What advice do you have?
1: Well, one thing I said, I've said a lot is sunlight is the best disinfectant, meaning that people have to bring, if they want to teach these uh, woke ideas or critical race theory, critical theory. Um, they need to make a justification for it. They need. To, they can't just teach it. They have to say why the Bible teaches it, why it's compatible with Christianity. So bring it all into the light. Don't hide behind you know nebulous phrases and, and these you know catchphrases or, or jargon like systemic racism. Okay, what do you mean by that? Tell us. Tell us where you see it in the Bible. Tell us how your views contrast with say Evamex Kendi or Robin DiAngelo. Tell us exactly where you depart. Don't, but bring it out into the open. This is why I'm so big on dialogue. You know, it's not merely because I think it's healthy for the church, which I think it is, but it's also because I truly believe that these ideas cannot withstand scrutiny. And frankly, I think many of the people pushing these ideas know that they know that they can't defend these ideas from a biblical perspective against, you know, competent uh, uh, people that are concerned and saying, no, they can't do that. And so instead they just crush all conversation. They, they avoid it. They they say they will not be platformed with people that they consider bigots. And But the point is, that's why if you push for a dialogue and say we have to have dialogue, that will actually end up forcing people that are pushing unbiblical ideas to essentially back off and, and because they can't defend them. So what I would say is if you're if you're worried about your church, again, talk to your pastors, talk to your elders one on one, share your concerns don't don't just say things like is this crt because first of all they can just say no (laughs) ask them about ideas say do you think do you believe that racism sexism heterosexism are all interlocking forms of oppression?" ask them that idea do you believe that do you believe that whenever there's disparity racial disparity there is discrimination do you believe that yes or no Uh, do you quote from primary sources quote ibram kendi saying you cannot be anti-racist if you're transphobic he says that on page like 119 of how to be an anti-racist don't quote me on that it's 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 in there Uh, and say do you believe that and if not okay then are you are you then going to be consistent and say we have to reject these ideas and you're gonna say that from the pulpit or are you going to pull back because you're worried that some progressive member might be offended if you say no. Ibram X. is n- is a blind guy. You cannot follow him. Um, but again, talk to your pastors. And and er- and the other thing too is I am at my wits' end uh, in terms of pastors who still think this is a non-issue. I think talk to you. I know personally. Me too. I have seen personally people who have completely apostatized after embracing the ideas, and they get they follow the exact same trajectory every single time. It goes from race. To gender the sexuality, to questioning the Bible's authority in their lives, to rejecting Jesus every single time, and because and why is that? Because they're, no, it's because it's the natural logical implications of these ideas that they've absorbed. And I can't believe pastors are still saying it's all a tempest in a teapot or it's all a boogeyman. It's it's not. It's really not. So, and if you need, you know, you can go to my website and find a, entire books that I've pre- reviewed that just spew this terrible theology and point them to those and say, what do you think of this? Are you going to finally dig your heels in and say, no, I, you know, I I can't let this devour my congregation. Or are you going to, you know, follow the, take the easy road and just sort of say nebulous moderate things until your whole church is devoured. I mean, you're the I mean, sorry, I'm kind of going off, but if you're a pastor, you're called by God to protect your flock, start doing it. Um, But as if you're a lay person, then I think the best you can do is just just push your your pastors, your elders, to be biblical, to um, to set guardrails and say we're never going to go here. The church is going to say from the pulpit we're not going to go here. This is wrong. Um, and, and then if there are if there are issues on which Christians disagree, the church needs to then be open to dialogue about them. If you if you really believe the scriptures are unclear on this issue, fine. Then you have to have both sides on the stage on know, on a weekend or something, giving their best case and defending it with scripture and objective evidence. Yeah. Um, but but you can't just quietly say nothing, and you can't just push only one side. Like we're okay, we kind of think this is an area of 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 um, it's a area of Christian liberty. You can believe what you want to believe on this one issue, and yet we're only going to ever teach you one yeah. thing from the pulpit. Well, then it's not a Christian. It's not really Christian liberty, or at least it's not you know. You're not, Practically viewing it as an area of opened for disagreement because you're, you're pushing one side. Right. It.
0: Yeah. I've seen so many panels like on racial injustice that that have. You know, that think that they're you're you know, they're we're being fair because we have like three black guys and three white guys, but then the three yeah. white guys are just saying, Yep, I agree with everything they're saying. And the black, you know, have the, the the black pastors have the same narrative that we're hearing and there's just one side being presented.
1: Well and you see it and that's the thing, people in people you're hearing that from both sides. You can have a woke panel where you have three you have two black, two Hispanic, and two woke white guys. Okay, but then you have an anti woke yeah. panel. That you have two anti woke black guys, two anti. You're only hearing one. It's not a panel. It's a monologue. Yeah. It's it's as Carl Truman said. They're reciting a liturgy. They're not having a they're not having a, a debate or discussion. So I keep saying, and people say, "Well, you just want us to be like a mushy moderate." No, I don't. I am totally anti woke, but I truly believe that if you put the woke and anti woke positions on stage. There's gonna be no contest because people are gonna say this is completely unbelievable. But again, yeah, that's why I'm I'm, part of the reason is it's very it's strategic. I push for dialogue because I don't think these ideas can be defended. They're not. And and I think we
0: saw that last week at T4G with which I was so grateful to see Uh, Kevin DeYoung and a black pastor uh, Bobby Scott had a very respectful, very uh, frank conversation about whether or not critical race theory was, um, was biblical. And I think, you know, Kevin DeYoung knocked it out of the park and, and presented very compelling evidence that it's just not compatible. And just that, that act itself of being on stage with someone you disagree with and Talking it out. And at the end of it, you know, still being brothers. And, you know, um, I appreciated Bobby Scott said Kevin DeYoung is not a white supremacist, <laughs> which uh,
1: which is controversial, <laughs> right?
0: Strangely enough. Yes. Um, yes. So that, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Like once I think that's why you've seen so much reluctance to actually sit down with you and, and debate, um, because these ideas, they they don't. There's a lot of holes in them. Once you start, you know, poking at it and pulling yeah. at the the threads. Um, let's see. Um, so, we've talked a lot about wokeness and the concern with with critical theory. Um, a lot of people would their concern in addressing these issues is that they don't want to completely ignore matters of racial injustice entirely. So what is a positive vision of how we can address racial injustice that where it still you know, occurs in the world that doesn't rely on critical race theory?
1: Right. And this is actually, you've heard of the panel at T4G with Kevin DeYoung and Bobby Scott. And it, the funny thing is, even that, I, I, I don't know that Bobby Scott was promoting critical race theory. He, he kept talking about racism, but I kept wanting to say, well, that's yeah. not critical race theory. Somebody talking about racism, we can do that all day long and never get remotely close to critical race theory. And so in that sense, I always was like, well, is he even, is he even promoting it? I want to, I want to see a dialogue between Kevin DeYoung and Jamar right, Kisman, yeah. right? That's what I want to see. And then both of you present your best arguments. Um, whereas I think, I think Scott, if you actually pressed him on the actual ideas it's not clear at all to me that he'd endorse them. I think he might reject them completely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So again, that's so I want I, really, I really truly want to see people on totally different sides debating and then let the best ideas win. Uh, that said, I have a whole talk I actually gave as a diver, as a mandatory diversity training seminar at Life Pacific University. It was called a DEI done right. And where I talk about critical theory and critical race theory and how these are terrible models for any kind of discussion about race and I present a positive uh, vision and a positive model for how we have these conversations based on the work of uh, Black evangelical sociologist George Yancey in his mutual accountability model that involves dialogue, um, but I have a whole talk on that. Uh, I think we definitely should n- not um, avoid discussions of racism. because Why? Because it exists today. and uh, There's data. I, forget about what these theories there's empirical data about the prevalence that's the opposition to interracial marriage within the evangelical church or at least within evangel- confessing evangelicals um discrimination exists there are studies in sociology e- economics in policing you can show that racial discrimination is happening today hate crimes happen guys It they do you know they'd happen to to blacks and to whites and to Asians but that's all racism right uh th- incarceration of innocent people it happens i mean i am not i'm not at all saying that everything that happens with police in and, and the court systems is wrong no i'm just saying that you can find actual cases of exonerate people that are exonerated they <laughs> were put in jail for you know 30 years that all happens so we we can't pretend that like the only alternatives is either racism or critical race theory you can reject Both. You can say racism exists and it's terrible. It's a scourge. And also, so is critical race theory. We should reject both of those. And so in my talks, I often will spend like 10 minutes going through all of the data saying, yeah, there still is. uh, There are problems with racism and racial discrimination in our culture today. And Christians can acknowledge that. And I would even argue if you are a staunch opponent of critical race theory, then you should make it extremely clear that you're not trying to crush conversations on race. I think that was that was Bobby Scott's concern, it mm-hmm. seemed like. He didn't want, I, I don't know for sure, but it seemed like he was hesitant to simply say, I reject CRT, because he felt like that would be interpreted to mean, I don't want to talk about race and racism, which is not what it means, but that's the, I think in our culture, people are like, well, if you don't use CRT, you can't talk about racism. And I'm like, that's not true at all. So anyway, that that's one big thing. Uh, the other thing is know what critical race theory is. It drives me nuts when people Don't know what CRT is at this point in our culture. uh, I have an entire article called What is Critical Race Theory? It's 1,800 words of nothing but primary source quotations. There's no commentary at all. There's no criticism. Here's what it is. You're the authors themselves telling you what it is. So you should at least recognize what critical race theory is. And then if you're critiquing someone's statements, critique those words. Don't just say, here's why it's bad at CRT. Uh, what does that even mean? Uh, you know, so, for example, uh, is systemic racism, the, the phrase systemic racism, is that critical race theory? Well, it depends how you define it, right? Because, you know, w- was Jim Crow systemic racism? Well, yeah, that's not critical race. There was literally <laughs> legal law- laws that explicitly discriminated against people mm-hmm. of color. So, so okay, is systemic racism, CRT, depends how you define it. What about white supremacy? Is that CRT? Well, it depends how you define it, right? What about whiteness? And this is where it gets tricky. Is is talking about how whiteness is bad? Is that critical race theory? Well, I've seen this semantic game where people will be like, "That's not critical race theory. That's critical whiteness studies." You're like, "Okay, okay, okay, whatever you want to call it." Or that's not critical race theory. That that's a that's anti-racist pedagogy. So they'll play this game where they will not will deny that this term or this idea fits into critical race theory. But here's the point doesn't matter where it fits or the proper term is for it just ask is the idea true or false that's really important because i think otherwise if you if you don't don't start playing their game where they just move the the goalposts around and never admit that anything is actually properly critical race theory just say is this idea true or false biblical or unbiblical uh and and so that and, and if you do that well, then you'll immediately realize that racial prejudice is a sin. It's evil. Injustice is wrong. God hates actual oppression. And yet all these other ideas about what oppression is, what justice is, uh, what race is, uh, all these things will fall into place if you focus on the ideas and not the labels. You yeah. Use.
0: And I think that asking that question, is it true? Is the perfect opportunity to bring it back to scripture? We have an yeah. ultimate authority for what truth is, So we can take these ideas, we can compare them to scripture and scripture will be our guide if we're under living under that authority and not these other ideologies, then that should become apparent. So, well, thank you so much uh, for joining us, Neil. You do have a book coming out. I want to give you a chance to promote that. It's not about critical theory, believe it or not. It is
1: not. What is it? It is, you know, uh, it's about apologetics. The, the title is "Why Believe: A Reasoned Approach to Christianity," published by Crossway, coming out June twenty first. But again, it's if you're looking to hear all about wokeness and and you know critical race theory, it's not even mentioned one time. Uh, this is just about the gospel for Christians. It'll teach you, uh, you know, give you confidence in what we believe, why we believe it, help you to share the gospel with non Christians. And I, I wanted to write a book that was. Um, that you could hand to not just a non-Christian, but to a non-Christian professor. So I was thinking about college students, who they often they'll read books. they are books like uh, "The Case for Christ" by Lee Strobel, classic book. that I actually enjoy, but I would not want to hand to a college professor because it just it's written in a very casual, informal, conversational way. My book is accessible. I, you know, I've my my kids have have read parts of it. Um, my kids, my oldest is thirteen. So it's accessible, and yet it has enough intellectual depth and scholarship that you could hand it to someone who um, was an intellectual and not feel like a little bit embarrassed for it. So I, I pitch it as uh, reason for God, Keller's reason for God, for STEM majors, nice. right? People in sciences and mathematics, because it, it, it feels a little bit more um, evidence-driven uh, uh, argument, uh, you know, logical argumentation throughout. But also at the end it's a lot about it's very much focused on the gospel, message of our salvation from sin. So anyway, yeah, if you wanna read it, but if you if it's don't go in expecting into to that but of course there that's awesome.
0: Not- <laughs> What's the name again?
1: Uh, why believe a reasoned approach to Christianity. Awesome.
0: Excellent. We look forward to that. Um <laughs>
1: Yeah, so that's the the show today. Thank you so much,
0: Neil, for joining us and and helping us think through these things. Uh, We will be back soon with some new content. I actually do have some um, cool guests lined up that I think are going to be really helpful to help us think through um, what we're seeing going on in a lot of our schools right now, um, which I'm really excited to have those conversations. But um, yeah, uh, until next time, fight the good fight.